Hey everybody, on this episode of the Athletic Potential Podcast, we are going to be discussing forearm muscle strain and how a patient was able to recover from that, weight versus speed and agility training, and managing acute injury. Welcome to the Athletic Potential Podcast, your place to come and get answers to your athletic development questions. We cover a range of topics all related to helping you to achieve your athletic goals so that you can experience and enjoy the athletic career that you deserve. I am your host, Dr. Mike Matthews. Hey everybody, welcome to the Athletic Potential Podcast, episode 19. We're going to jump right into our case. Uh, we have a 19-year-old female softball pitcher who sustained a forearm muscle strain, specifically to the flexor pronator mass. It's the bulk of muscles that's just on the inside of the elbow. And her pain was mainly present when she was uh, pitching, specifically at the point of ball release when her fingers would go into flexion and her wrist would go into flexion. She started noticing the pain about a month prior to her first uh, treatment with us, uh, an examination with us. And it was to the point now where she just she couldn't pitch anymore because of the pain was too high. She was able to throw overhand, so she was still playing a position. Uh, however, she was unable to pitch, which is her primary position. And so she came to us for treatment. And uh, we quickly diagnosed it with a flexor pronator strain, mainly because all of her ligament testing and bone testing was all negative. And anytime we tried to have her grip and rotate and, and pronate and do different things that way, all of her pain came from that specific region. Now, since it's been, it had been already a month um, prior when her pain started, we indicated that basically the tissue itself uh, was just wasn't very good tissue. I hate to call it degenerative, but it was more on that uh, point where it just was there, it was overused, it's just not very good tissue, and the body had not essentially stopped trying to repair it, but it, it had ramped down the healing process in that region. And so we determined that she needed to improve the tissue quality of that region. We decided to use a, bun- a bunch of different methods um, to improve that. Her treatments typically looked like she would come in, we would test everything, make sure her range of motions in her shoulder and elbow looked really good. And then what we would do is start with grip training, specifically targeting those muscles, the flexor pronator mass. And we do that using blood flow restriction training that allowed us to decrease the intensity or the, the resistance level uh, to those muscles to the point where she did not experience pain during those exercises. And uh, we were able to improve the, the tensile quality of that tissue. Now, not only did we use blood flow restriction training to help improve her ability to tolerate the exercises, but we also used um, a biofeedback device to try and improve her ability to contract the muscles while using blood flow restriction training, all of which happened in the absence of pain, which is what we were going for. And this allowed her to really uh, hone in and, and focus on these muscles and get these muscles a little bit stronger. Uh, they tested weak um, compared to the other side. We used it a couple different methods to test for strength in her forearm and, and her right side des- definitely tested weak. So it wasn't just pain that was her problem. It was actually that her muscles had become a little bit weaker now, which may have actually been the cause of the reason why she had increases in pain. She may have been weak prior to her injury. However, we definitely discovered the weakness. And so we uh, started working on strength uh, using those methods that we talked about. And then the other thing we wanted to do to improve the tissue quality in that region was use dry needling to ramp up the body's natural healing response to the area to get the, the tissues there to remodel or to turn over to heal and to be stronger than they were previously. Now, we are towards the end of our treatments and she is back throwing and pitching right now. She's able to pitch a fair amount of innings with uh, minimal pain 
pain in her elbow. However, she does continue to have a little bit of pain that is present, which is also the same reason why we're continuing to treat. We've modified things a little bit. We don't use quite as much blood flow restriction training. We're still continuing to use the biofeedback units to improve her muscle contraction quality, which is still lower than her non-throwing side. Uh, it's a bit odd. I would expect her throwing side to be quite a bit better than her non-throwing side, but it wasn't. So I feel like that may be one of the reasons why she sustained an injury. So we're going to clean that up. We're continuing to use dry needling as it, it uh, basically has taken her pain away and allowed her to continue to pitch and it continues to allow for the body's natural healing response to occur. So we'll continue to use that. And the hope is that here in the next week or two, she's completely pain-free and able to pitch uh, unlimited amount of uh, pitches uh, back to her normal amount with uh, without pain or problem. So anyways, that's our case for today. Um, again, general principles in regards to the case. So the reason why we discuss cases is to kind of give you an idea of what goes on here at Athletic Potential, but maybe some things that you can look for in your athletes or in yourself that you may see that need to be addressed or that you may catch an injury sooner or later or just kind of give you an idea of things that you can look at to try and improve uh, your overall athletic ability, then may just kind of spawn some ideas, uh, things you need to work on. So, all right. So after our cases, we typically jump into our question uh, from our audience. We'll do that next. So our first question comes from Carrie. Uh, she says, I have taken my kids to a variety of different training facilities in the past. It seems that they either get mostly speed and agility work or only weight training. What would you recommend for kids age 12 and 15 both girls. So you have girls that are age 12 and 15. Um, let's give you a little more specific advice here, Carrie, to make sure that we can answer the question. And then I'll give you kind of general principles in regards to speed and agility versus weight training. Um, at age 12, um, most of our 12 year olds, my 12 U, uh, trainees, they all have to demonstrate good movement quality first. So they have to show me they can, they can do a good squat. They have to show me they can do a good hinge. They have to show me that they can do a good push up. They have to show me they can do a good row or a pull up and they have to show me good posture. The other thing that I'm now incorporating and just more recently have started incorporating is their ability to be able to manage, um, their pelvic position. So think if they're standing, this comes into posture, but the idea is that their ability to uh, change their lower back position, think um, the waistline. If you look at the waistline of their pants, is it tilted forward? Is it tilted back? Is it level? And I want them to be able to show me that they can control that. So if I say, Hey, I went tilt, tilt your waistline forward or tilt that line forward. Can they, can they pull it all the way back? Can they make it level when I ask them? And then the other thing that I'm having uh, most of our clients do is I ask them to rotate. Can they rotate their pelvis or rotate their lower body, uh, hips, uh, pelvis, lower back region, uh, independent of their upper spine, so the thoracic spine? So think um, mid-spine down to the hips. Can they rotate and do so in place without kicking their hips out side to side? What that indicates is that they can control their pelvis side to side and rotation. And what we found is when we've got kids that can actually control their pelvis and position, we seem to run into a lot less issues in regards to low backs and shoulders. And, and that's kind of, I think it's just because their, their body's in a better position to do the task. And so, uh, for your 12, 12 year old, uh, daughter, Carrie, um, that that's where we would, we would start. And, and she, and she showed good movement quality throughout all of those things. And we could start using resistance training with her. Um, now, you, you kind of mentioned, uh, well, speed and agility work. Um, our programming incorporates all of it. 
And so a lot of times you'll go to facilities and, and they're really good at the speed agility side. And so you'll see them out on the turf doing the quick feet work, all those type of things and, and doing other things like that. And, and maybe that's what they need. And you see improvements specifically in the younger kids because a lot of times it teaches them to be a little bit more coordinated and that only helps them on the field of play. The problem is that it negates the, the thought of, you know, hey, we need to get stronger. The more force you can put into the ground when you're trying to move side to side, the faster you're going to go. What they're doing is teaching in those facilities is teaching you to move quickly with the force you already can generate. So um, the problem with that is that if you don't generate more force, uh, you're only going to move as fast as you can put force into the ground at this point. And so you're missing a little bit of the equation. On the other side, if you're going to the weight room and you only do weights and uh, you know squats and, and lunges and those kind of things under heavy weights and never really move quickly, um, then you're able to produce force into the ground, but you can't do so very fast. And that that equates to power, and then it equates your ability to be to move quickly in, in regards to velocity. And if you miss on those components, uh, you're you're strong, but you don't move fast. And in sport, you want to move fast. Um, and so you, you've got to do both. A lot of times the facilities are a little bit limited just based on their business models and or availability in space and or their staff. And so, um, I know here we, we've got, we run, we can do all programming, uh, types. And so we, we do speed work, we do agility work, we do power training, and then we do strength training, all of which to improve the equations. Um, um, for those that know me and, and spend a lot of time around me, I'm a, I'm a pretty big nerd. And so, uh, the way that we designed the programming here at Athletic Potential, which isn't really uncommon compared to other facilities, is my, I've always had more of these uh, biomechanical equations and physics equations in my brain, and and that's how we design it. Is in order to improve, you know, um, your your acceleration that has has you know something to do with the. Uh, force equals mass times acceleration equation. And when we modify those equations and, and work on those variables in very specific ways to improve our, our athlete's ability to do the task. And, um, and so I think in regards to your, to answer your question, Carrie, and, and we'll cover the 15 year old here in just a second, but, um, what would I recommend for your age? And, but realistically, uh, you need both speed and agility and you also need weight training, uh, improvements in strength. Uh, they all feed into the same physics equations. And if you only want to work on one side of the equation, it will, uh, only get you good on that one side and negatively affect the outcome. If you do good on both sides and that's when you get the best outcomes, right? And so definitely want to work both. Um, I've definitely seen facilities or areas of, you know, maybe more in the rural areas where they, they have a facility where they predominantly work on speed and agility and then they'll go do strength training at a different facility. Um, that may get a little bit costly, uh, logistics become a problem there, but if you have the option, you need to do both. Um, uh, we've done stuff in the past where clients will go do agility work and, uh, we'll program their strength training and it's all done virtually. And so they have a good program. They do strength training. We, we make sure that they're doing the movements correctly, which we can modify or, um, uh, monitor via just videos. And, uh, then they get both components there. And so the idea is to complete the whole equation and to address all variables in the equation. So you need to make sure you do that. In regards to your 15 year old carry, I actually would start with the same thing I said for your 12 year old. Uh, movement quality is, is paramount. You have to make sure you have demonstrate good movement quality before you can do anything else. And once you have good movements, then we can start loading and, and, and moving from there. Now your 15 year old is um, either going to be a freshman or junior, sorry, freshman or sophomore in high school. And, um, 
at that point, we're starting to look at, you know, next level type things. And so if it's a softballer, then we need to make sure they're performing on the field um, and, and, and they're being successful. And at that point, what I what I like to do with a 15-year-old, specifically if they haven't trained at all, we start with movement competencies first. And if they do that really well, then we, we know we're on a good path that they're going to show some improvements on the field. Now, say they've done a, a lot of speed and agility work, but almost no strength training at that point, we have to start working on strength, but we have to do it at the right time. And, and Carrie, obviously, I don't, I don't know what type of athletes your girls are. Um, you know, if they're softballers and soccer players and, you know, gymnasts and, and, and these, these sports that are more year round, really no time off, which is most sports. Now, uh, I always think volleyball too. Um, I mean, track and field may be a little different here, but the idea is we need to pick a time of the year, uh, for the 15 year old where we need to work on strength. And that'll be the predominant focus for that time. And then we'll, we'll kind of integrate back into power activities as we get closer to the sport. If there's really no time to do that, then we're going to integrate strength training anyways. But we'll do so in a way that the volume never never affects the playing and performance on the field. So in a negative way. So um, Carrie, I hope this answers your question. You, you need both speed speed and agility and power and strength training. They need to be all in one package. They need to complement each other. And uh, if you don't, then you're only working one side of an equation and that will negatively affect the outcome. It just won't allow you to fully achieve everything. Uh, won't allow you to reach that potential level that you, that your, your girls may want to reach. So, uh, Carrie, I hope that answers your question. So let's jump to our next question. It's from Natalie. Natalie asks, uh, you have mentioned that you don't currently use the rice protocol for new injuries. Uh, rice is rice, or rest, ice, compression, elevation. It's uh, kind of a, it's the, um, it's the approach everybody knows in regards to if you sprain an ankle or or you have something that happens that causes an injury in your elbow and hand, foot, whatever, it doesn't matter. Uh, you, you rest it, you ice it, you compress it, and you elevate it. Uh, yeah, let's see. You don't currently use the rice protocol for you, for new injuries. What would you recommend for injuries if not rice uh, protocol? Well, I, it's definitely. Um, I definitely don't use the rice protocol. Um, what we found is, uh, there, there's a doctor who came up with a rice protocol. Uh, his name is Dr. Merkin and he came out with rice protocol because it made sense at the time. Now there's a lot of cool ways to, to there's a cool stories behind all of how the rice protocol was developed and, and those type of things. But realistically, uh, if you want to look those up, you can, um, it's a bit lengthy for this podcast, but basically what they found is the rice protocol doesn't work. Um, the research doesn't back it. And Dr. Merkin, who is the guy who coined the rice term and, and the protocol for that, uh, publicly recanted that, I believe in the 1980s and came out and said, no, this actually doesn't work for soft tissue injuries the way we thought it would, or the way we, we proposed it, or maybe it was misapplied, I think is one of the things that the, one of the theories is that everybody took the rice protocol, which was made for something else and applied it to these sport injuries, uh, where it really didn't have context, but it, it stuck because it was easy to remember. And, um, and let's be honest, it didn't actually make anybody worse when they were doing it. However, what we've noticed and it, with the rice protocols, it doesn't really help anybody get better. And so, uh, yeah, for new injuries, I, I don't, I don't like the rice protocol. Uh, I don't think it does the things that we need it to do. And I think it actually slows down the healing process and, and our ability to return. I can tell you this, um, uh, in, in regards to a new injury. So let, let's go more on the extreme side of this. Let's use maybe a surgery to be example for an example. So obviously I treat a lot of baseball, softball players. So we see quite a bit of elbow injury, uh, elbow surgery. So we'll just say Tommy John. And what we found is uh, traditionally what happens is the patient has surgery. Uh, they're stitched up. 
they're covered up and then they're sent on their way either in a soft splint or a cast or something depends on the surgeon. And, and they're basically told not to move it for a certain amount of time, usually days to weeks. And they get a fair amount of swelling from that, mainly because they had surgery, right? Well, it's not only because they had surgery, but it's because they're not moving. Now, they're not moving to protect the site of the surgery, both the skin, the new graft, those type of things. However, they're, they're not moving, which then equates to a little bit more of a, like a swelling response and the body's inability to get rid of the fluid in the arm. And what we have found is that we've developed certain protocols um, and we've worked with different surgeons in the area and developed these protocols that allowed for better uh, blood flow to happen during these phases where right after surgery, they're really not supposed to move, right? Uh, and so if you think they're not allowed to move, that's the rest part of the rice where we want people to move. It's something that I, I want all of my athletes to do after an injury to move in ways that doesn't increase injury, doesn't increase pain, but does promote blood flow. And so in regards to surgeries, coming back to that, we basically said, look, if you can't move fine, uh, but we're not going to ice it, we're not going to compress it, and we're not going to elevate it because we just don't see the evidence in that. Elevation is the only one in the RICE protocol that actually shows um, to work a little bit. And compression, I guess, to a little, to a certain extent, although um, it, you can compress and, and that helps to, to return some of the fluid out of the limb. Uh, and I'm going off a bit off on a tangent, to, um, but it doesn't really work that well. I think the analogy somebody used uh, for me was, yeah, yeah, it works. And you can empty a swimming pool with a shot glass, but there's probably a better way to do it. And uh, so, okay. So I, I come back. So so we have somebody has surgery, they're, they're immobile. And what we found is we were using um, electrical stimulation devices to create uh, muscle contractions around the area of the surgery. And what that does is allows for the body to take the fluid that's basically kind of stuck in the elbow, that's swelling, and to get rid of it by using different mechanisms with blood flow and lymphatic system. And what we've noticed is that when they get these soft casts off in the elbow, if the swelling's gone, and uh, or is predominantly gone, it's not really there, all of a sudden the range of motion measurements, which are really stiff usually out of these, these soft casts at this point, are, are fairly normal. They come out moving really, really well. And that's because they don't have any of this buildup of bad t- or bad fluid and, and, um, and essentially waste materials from the body's ability trying to heal this area. And, and it, it's just not there because it's been taken out by, by the body. And all of a sudden we, now we can move a lot faster with these athletes. And all of a sudden we've, we've got elbow extension and flexion that's there and, um, they're able to, to go into their protocols a lot faster. And we've noticed that this has been not only true with elbows, but it's been true with knees after surgery. So think total knee replacements. We've seen the exact same results. Uh, none of this has been studied in research and peer reviewed journals, but this is just stuff that we've seen in clinic and, and has been, and has worked. Um, so yeah, I don't use the RICE protocol uh, mainly because it, does, it doesn't work as well and or at all compared to what we've been trying to do. And that is we want to promote blood flow, which helps to promote muscle um, contraction, which then helps get rid of swelling and bring better nutrients to the area. The analogy I use with everybody is, say you've got a construction site and uh, they're building a building. And so you've got trucks that are bringing materials in, and then you've got trucks that are taking waste materials out and the workers are working on the building. All of a sudden, the snowstorm hits, ice. And right, this is equated to ice. Uh, what happens? Everything stops or slows down, right? So the workers can't work as well, maybe not be safe, it's too cold, materials aren't really 
you know, being able to be managed as well. Trucks aren't coming in because they can't get in because of the snow. Trucks aren't getting out because they can't get out because of the snow. And, and what happens is everything just kind of stops. No, no progress happens um, or anything like that. Well, say the snowstorm goes away, everything melts. What happens? Well, it all starts up again. Everybody starts working. Trucks go in, trucks go out. Workers work. They found in the research that this actually happens in the body. If you ice something, what happens is every the inflammatory process, which is what a lot of people use this for, just slows the process down uh, in regards to the healing inflammatory process. But as soon as we take the ice off, that same in, uh, exact inflammatory process starts again and goes back to where it was before. Now, that's not necessarily a good thing, right? I mean, it really didn't do anything other than just slow it down. And the problem is, is the inflammatory process is the body's natural ability to heal and you need it but you need it in conjunction with the good materials coming in. That's blood flow in and getting rid of the waste materials that should be coming out. That's blood flow out and then using the lymphatic system to also remove that fluid. If you compress that, it's harder to do that. You know, essentially just shrink your work area down in the construction zone and see how well it goes. Um, at elevation, there's no great in regards to the analogy. I'm sure somebody will send me one and be like, hey, this, this works with your analogy. Well, I don't have a good one for elevation, okay? But in regards to icing, that's the snowstorm. Compressing, this makes tighter work area. It's harder to work, right? Uh, and then, like I said, with elevation, we don't know. And so in regards to these injuries and these soft tissue injuries, I don't recommend rice because I feel like we can get a better healing response and a faster healing response, which is really the thing I look for, right? My, my job is to get people better fast because uh, if they're not playing, if they're injured, they're not playing. And in some cases, that's money lost. And in some cases, that's time loss that they, they can't get back. Or maybe it's opportunities that they won't be able to be seen by someone to maybe make it to the next level, right? And so we want to get people back as fast as possible and as safely as possible. And uh, that's why I don't use the RICE protocol. So um, if not RICE, what would I recommend? Anything that promotes blood flow. Uh, let me rephrase this. Anything that decreases pain and also promotes, promotes blood flow and movement. Um, ankles. My favorite, um, as I tell people, look, can you walk on your ankle? Can you walk on it? They, they just recently sprained. I ask them, can you walk on it? If they say, no, I can't walk on it. I say, cool, you're heading to the doctor's because you got to get an x-ray because that, that's the standard standard procedure. If, if you can't walk on an ankle sprain after it, you, you need to go to the doctor and, and make sure you didn't break something. Uh, so say you can walk on it after an ankle sprain. I tell everybody, great. Uh, you can put a little bit of a brace on it so it doesn't feel unstable and I need you to walk. And just go walking. And that movement of walking, well, be it, I tell them, I want a pain level of three or less. If it's nine out of 10 pain, don't walk on that, right? That, that means you can't walk on it. You should go to the doctor uh, to get images and those type of things. Um, but if it's less than three, you know, three on a 10 scale or less, I need you to walk on it and move. The movement itself, uh, the term walk it off actually works here. The movement itself promotes blood flow, promotes movement. Okay. And, and, and allows for the body's natural healing response to occur. And so ankle sprains, that's what I tell people to do. If they're worried, if it feels unstable, then I stabilize it via a brace or whatever it is. And then I tell them to walk on it if they can walk on it. Um, uh, same thing with elbows. If they can move it back and forth after an injury, you know, I deal with a fair amount of gymnasts and sometimes they kind of hyperextend an elbow or something like that. I test for it and everything seems okay. I tell them, look, you need to go move that. Don't ice it. Don't hold it still. I need you to go move it. And we move it. 
and uh, and it works. And a lot of times, um, if we're dealing with swelling, uh, my go-to is using an electrical stimulation device placed uh, around on a, in very specific protocol patterns on the leg or the arm, depending on where the injury is. And uh, we have people wear those devices. It's non-fatiguing muscle contraction, and we have those people wear devices for hours uh, to help the body just get rid of that swelling. And so... Uh, that's what I would recommend, uh, Natalie. Uh, for those that know me, and, and this is something that I've, I learned many, many years ago, and, it, and it's something that's kind of just stuck around, the idea of using ice and those type of things. There's been really good work put out um, by a guy named um, by a name Gary uh, Rhino, I think is his name. Uh, and, and, and he has a whole book. It's called uh, Iced, I believe. And it talks about how it's just a bad option. And and it's a fantastic book. And it's something that I refer to constantly. And you'll see my recommendations reflect what's in there from what Gary wrote. And so um, I definitely want to, uh, maybe you can look at that. That'll kind of give an idea of what else we do here. But um, Natalie, I hope that answers your question. Um, if you do have an injury, then the, uh, really the best thing we can do, and I've talked about this in previous podcasts, is really go, go have somebody look at it. And, and I prefer somebody that, you know, obviously knows what they're doing. I mean, doctors are, are totally fine. Uh, we have people come into our, our clinic and, and our facility here um, after injuries or even call us uh, right after an injury. And it, it really, really helps us to get them back on the field faster if we can start managing that almost immediately. And so I believe one of the previous podcast episodes, you can look it up. It's, it's like managing acute hamstring uh, strains. I tell the story of, of a client that, that uh, her uh, parent, her father called me from the stands as he's on his way down to go check on if she's injured or not. I, we didn't, he hadn't even talked to her yet. And he's like, look, we need you to manage this. I mean, it just happened seconds before. And uh, the cool thing is we were able to get her back playing um, really quickly from a fairly decent hamstring injury. So, and Natalie, I hope that answers your question. Um, yeah, I appreciate it. Well, that does it for today. So two questions. Uh, I really appreciate everybody taking the time to ask questions and then, uh, and also just paying attention to our podcast. Uh, please tell your friends about the podcast. We want to make sure we can help as many people as possible. I appreciate the time. I appreciate you, um, any subscriptions or reviews that you can give to us. And uh, if you have questions, again, you can visit the website. That'll help us out a lot. And until next time, thanks. Everybody, I just want to say thank you for listening to the Athletic Potential Podcast. If you do have questions for the podcast, please visit the website, www.athletic-potential.com slash podcast. You'll find a button there to ask your question. Please input your information and your question, and we will answer any and all questions we get. We thank you again for listening. If you do get a chance, please rate and review the podcast. And until next time, thanks. Thanks.